Counsel Podcast is a show dedicated to individuals and mental health professionals, providing support, information, and some candid conversations along the way. And now, here are your hosts, Michelle and Seth. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Mental Podcast. And today we are going to be extending our series covering domestic violence, specifically looking at trauma. But really, it's been a week. Has it not, Michelle? Like it's, it's only been... been a week. It's only been a week. Feels like right. <laughs> There's just been a lot. There's just been a lot going on. Now, let's just note that. You know, I pulled out an ad and yeah, I, I, saw, I, I, I was really trying to let all of our listeners know that if they wanted to, to listen to our show via, you know, video that <laughs> they could. And I wanted to give them a little heads up on that, but um, we didn't, we didn't really get here on. Time. I screwed it up. What now? Wait, talk about that. <laughs> I was out. I wasn't back home in time to sit down in front of my computers. <laughs> I'm I'm the reason we're late. In my defense, my son is visiting from Washington and we were in another town having lunch together and then, you know, ambling about the town. And then we had to get gluten-free cupcakes on the way home. So suddenly I looked down and I was like, oh, shit, we're not going to make it. In time." The, now, you're both gluten intolerant, right? No, it's not both. that son. The, okay. My youngest son is gluten is gluten um, has celiac. Yeah. And this is my oldest son that's visiting. So both my sons are here right now. So Okay. Well, yeah. good. Well, so it sounds like this is a good time in in life, right? You're it surrounded is. by family my, and your children. My, my boys are here. I'm I'm missing my girls, but my boys are here and he came uh he came as a nice as a nice surprise visit to me for my birthday. So When is your birthday? Sunday. Okay. I was like I didn't think I missed it, but you had me no, all worried. I don't make a big for... deal about it, but he called and asked if he could come and I was like, "Yeah, of course." So, he's here for my birthday. Well, I think it's awesome that Which he did nice. come. That you're surrounded by family. I think that's great. Yeah, both my boys and my daughter-in-law, so. Now, since you do have family in town <laughs> and I mean, I'm assuming a not very big birthday coming up, probably like what, 28 29 um you know yeah one of my friends in the gym this morning he's like so how does it feel to be 21 again i'm like Shut up. i said i do not have a problem with my age we do not have to we do not have to placate me with false ages i'm gonna be 55 so i'm i'm totally fine with it well that's i mean that's that that's an adult response <laughs> as <laughs> as you move forward into this new year of another year let's yeah. check in on your mental minute oh I don't know. Life's been busy. It's tax season, which always. Right. I usually have at least two or three meltdowns. Did I have a meltdown with you the other day? I think. On Marco Polo? I, I, <laughs> I feel like I did. It's. I'm not going to say yes or no because it's very possible. But what was the meltdown over? Oh, my God. It, this happens every year. It drives me up the wall. Yeah. Nope. I remember. <laughs> They're called in. They called in mad. They were they, they, no. They sent me a message because this their CPA had sent them in specific instructions for something that needed to be done by a certain day, and I didn't see them respond. So trying to be conscientious, I sent an email on the due date and said, "Hey, did you get this taken care of?" To which I received a response: "How dare you not tell me this is coming up? I would appreciate being told in the future." Like and jumped down my throat. 
bad thing to do. Uh, you don't work for the company. You're a contractor, yes? It's not even a company. It's an individual. And no, I do work for them. I, I do their work for them. I send it to the CPA. The CPA then processes the forms and gives them instructions to follow. My job is done at that point, except I'm just in on the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, she jumped down my throat, which she did not get even a, an eighth back of what I really let loose in private. Because quite honestly, I think my I think that my response to you was, how do people piss by themselves without my help? Well, because honestly, I, your lack of ability to follow through on directions is not my problem or fault. Okay, <laughs> so. so can I can I can I be a little bit of an ass? Oh, go ahead. Why not? Everybody mm. else in my life is. Oh, oh. <laughs> by golly. <laughs> That's really where we're going to stand. Sure. Go ahead. Okay. Now you're in school right now, yes, correct? I am. Yes. And well, in... I'm not physically in a class right now. I won't start another one until April 1st, but yes. Well, I yeah. Am you're in school. actively in yes. higher ed. Yes. And what are you getting your degree in? Doctorate in psychology. Doctorate in psychology. And if there is, I, I, this is just a, a piece of, of wisdom that I would like to, to share at mm-hmm. my young, young mm-hmm. age yes. of experience. Treat your clients in this business world like you would a person in your office for therapy. It changes the game. Because hear me out here. You don't like that response. But I, I yeah, it's bullshit. Well, it's bullshit. <laughs> it's bullshit. It's great practice. I don't understand what we're talking about here. No. Is it not? I mean, I I extend so much psychological knowledge into dealing with my clients on an ongoing basis as it is. Honestly, right. it was part of the reason I went back to school was because I realized how much was involved in the business world, how much psychology was actually necessary to deal with people that own businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, however, if you literally cannot read an email that says, write this check, send it to this address by this date. If I need to placate you in that process, you should not be in business. You just shouldn't. Well, that's that's obvious. If you are incapable of opening your own mail <laughs> to the point where it's detrimental to your financial well-being, you should not be in business. And if you are incapable of saying, yeah, I fucked that up, my bad, and instead try to project your shit onto somebody else, you won't be in my business for long. I don't put up with that crap. Actually, I have put up with that crap for far too long, which is part of the problem. So what I hear maybe (laughs) is that you are establishing some boundaries. Yes, don't therapize me right now. I'm not. You are. (laughs) You're, You're feeding back to me what you hear. You're using the dulcet tones. You're doing all of the shit Whatever. you're supposed to do. I'm just trying to say, <laughs> I'm just trying to put a positive spin on the shittiness no, of your experience. No, you're my friend. Your job is to say, yeah, what a dumbass. I can't okay. believe that they What a dumbass. <laughs> can't believe them. <laughs> what are they doing in business? Oh, no. I, that's just apropos for this time of year. This is how it goes every year. So it, it's just, you know, it'll get worse as we get closer. Although the IRS extended the deadline into May. So, you know, I get to be, I get to deal with this for an extra month. <laughs> well, but yeah. So anyway, there's just been a lot of personal stuff in the last week that's been difficult for me. So I will tell you this. Uh, I spent, I spent the hour with my therapist on Friday. Uh-huh. Uh, it was a, a difficult discussion. I picked up on some very 
key things that have become repetitive in my life. And I recognized it all the way back to my childhood. And so when I got there, I said, I have something I need to talk about. This happened. I noticed a pattern. I recognized where the pattern started. And she was like, okay, good. She goes, now, next week, we're going to start EMDR for that. And I was like, <laughs> mm-hmm. you it kind of freaked me door. out a little bit. Yeah, well, you opened the out. door. You essentially showed insight into your yeah. own issues and yeah. established a trend, which is what she's looking for in order to right. be able to do. So EMDR. she's like, "Yeah." So she said, "Next week we're gonna we're gonna try this," and I said, "Okay." So I'm I'm a little nervous about it. So, and again, I don't. I'm now. I've already been accused of therapizing you, so I'm like <laughs> terrified on asking questions. Oh, stop now. it! But terrified. I would like to know. <laughs> You have been in therapy and we've talked offline and on the podcast Mm -hmm. about how this experience has brought up a lot of emotions very much yeah, in your life. And and if there's anything I know from having my own emotions and dealing with traumatic shit is that oftentimes it's kind of like uh, when it rains, it pours, Mm -hmm. right? Because it puts us in a fragile position. So then we're actually looking at situations differently. Yeah, through a different lens. And it can almost impact everything we think about. Uh, So it can, it can really kind of wreck havoc there for for a few months. And so is that kind of what you've been experiencing? Or has there been other stuff? I mean, I've always been an emotional person. Anyway, I typically don't cry like at pain or anything like that. But I I am, I do get emotional very easily over things. And I, so on a normal basis, that's up, that's problematic to me. I don't like that. Just on a physical level, I don't like to get emotional because my eyes hurt, my head hurts, you know, I don't sleep. It's, it's, it's draining. But in this case, I've noticed that everything is making me feel very emotional. And so I I guess that's probably a lot of years of swallowing stuff that I shouldn't have swallowed. Mm -hmm. And, And now it's, it's come to that point where it's all coming out. But it, it's it's problematic because it, it interrupts my day, right? It, you know what I mean. It, it sneaks up on you out of nowhere, and and there really may not even be a reason in front of you for the emotion, and suddenly there's all this emotion. And uh, I've been I was trying really hard over the last few days to control that, and the problem with doing that is it's going to find a way. And uh, I woke up not last night, night before last. I woke up at about two thirty in the morning, and I've had migraines since I was five. Mm-hmm. But I haven't had one in a, a, probably a year, I think, somewhere in there. I woke up in the middle of the night and I was very disoriented. All of a sudden I realized I'm in a great amount of pain and I don't know why, what's happening. And uh, I, suddenly I came all the way awake and realized I have a migraine. And typically if I have a migraine, I'm able to separate it out from what I'm doing because I can stay busy during the day. I can compartmentalize basically the pain and I can kind of push it to the side. When I'm lying in a dark room with nothing to do, I can't do that. And so it got very overwhelming very quickly. And all I could do was lay there and cry. And mm. so that's what I'm saying. The emotion's going to find a way. And, it, and typically, it's going to probably cause some problematic stuff along the way. And so the headache was definitely problematic. All I could do was lay there and wait for it to pass. And by the next morning, I woke up. My teeth still hurt. I was a little disoriented. Uh, my speech was a little off. But other than that, the headache your was speech, gone. But your speech was off? That always happens after I have... A migraine, migraine. I get my words confused or I'll have to stop and think about what I'm going to say an extra long time to get it to come out right. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't had one in a while. So that was, it was much more problematic this time. But I, I had to look at that and realize that's what happened when I tried to shut off the emotion that was needing to come out. I feel like that's where it came from. I could be wrong. I don't know. So, but yeah, it, yeah. So a longer week, a lot more emotions going on than normal. 
So, and that's saying something. So. <laughs> mm-hmm. I do try. I mean, I smile a lot. I try to laugh a lot. But yeah, in those moments when you're by yourself, there's a lot of emotion that sits there. So, yeah. yeah. Anyway, how was your week? <laughs> uh, <laughs> honestly, not. We have to do this, don't we? Yeah. Honestly, not horrible. Okay. Uh, I, 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 honestly, I don't know how I feel. Like I, I'm. I don't want to say that I'm bad because I'm not, and I don't want to say that I'm good because I'm not. I'm. I'm really just kind of. I'm here. <laughs> You're here. I, I'm here. <laughs> Some days um, that's okay. <laughs> that's why I was like, when we talk about mental minutes and we want to talk about our emotions and our feelings and kind of process things, it's kind of like, well, I, I'm here. Yeah. I Friday of last week, I stepped in last minute and taught someone else's class Mm. in the morning and then I had a headache after that so I messaged my boss and I was like hey how are your migraines going and she's like oh I've been having a few I said (laughs) set her up (laughs) I think I I think I got one it's my lucky day and she's like Seth get out of here and so I was like that's Thank right. You. That's smart. Appeal to their sense of understanding. Because I know that she has migraines because she's exactly. asked me about them. And so I was like, yeah, well, <laughs> it's on the right side of my head, which is typically indicative of a migraine. And yeah, that's where mine is, too. <laughs> I got off of work and I did take a very hot bath and like mm. relax. And within about two hours, it had gone away. Well, so funny. I felt like I probably could have continued working. However, had I not done that. That would, it it only would have gotten worse. Well, and it's okay. It's okay to take that break every now and then. Well, no, there's more. When you need it. So then Monday, (laughs) so then Monday, I don't even know which day it was, but there was another day this week I took off. I think I took Monday a half day and took a full day off. Mm Mm-hmm. I think is what I did. So I, I think I did you said a, you took, yeah, you were telling me you were taking some time off. Yeah. I took a half day Monday, took Tuesday off. And I also have Monday and Tuesday of next week completely scheduled off. Now I feel bad because I'm kind of wasting PTO without a real vacation planned. However, things are about to get intense. Oh. Uh, so it's kind of preparation, if you will. It's like, hey, I've got the time and I don't have a class. Yeah. And once March 29th hits, it is full throttle until the end of May. And so it's like I. OK, so that sounded like a lead into a movie or something. So what's happening now. March 29th? March 29th. Is that the company thing? We use currently throughout now the, where I work is a Fortune 500 insurance company being bought out by a Fortune 50 company. Uh, the software that they use is very, very old. Mm. And I'm not talking negative about it because it's actually been very, very effective, but it's literally green screens from the 1970s. I train new hire, you know, millennials. They come in and they feel like they're playing <laughs> Oregon Trail. So, yeah, you know. <laughs> Um, it, it's time. And so uh, we've bought, you know, they spent multi- millions, a lot of money, um, money. onto this new electronic health record. And I am part of the corporate clinical training team. So who do you think has to teach the entire company? Yeah, I remember now. It just took me a minute. I was thinking something else. But yeah, we do. So March 29th is when train the trainer starts. And uh-huh. I uh, Wednesday through Thursday of this week, sorry, Wednesday through Friday, I did all of the test prep in the new system for them. Uh, 
I'm sorry. This is a lot of information that means nothing to anyone. Just know that I have been very busy <laughs> and it's going to get really busy. And so I'm taking some time off. Good for you. And I get you a four should. day weekend. So I'm there pretty, you go. that's nice. Pretty, pretty happy about that. Yeah, I can see why. In regards to my stability, I think that I'm doing okay. You know, I, I definitely have received, you know, some, some negative publicity uh, over the last couple months, weeks, whatever. And I can't control any of that. All no. I can control is who I am, mm-hmm. the, why I made the decisions I did, and what I want this show to become. And I am pouring all of my effort into this show. And I'm very excited about where Michelle and I are going to take this. It's even been evident in kind of the last two series, um, just on the direction that we're moving. And again, I I know this is my mental minute, but I'm going to throw this out there. If you have noticed a change in our episodes, or you're finding it beneficial, or you're thinking that it's not beneficial, please feel free to text us at our hotline. That is 314-690-5005. We really would love to hear from you um, because we, we're, tr- we're taking in a lot of feedback and a lot of advice and trying to direct this show. And why did I put that into a mental minute? I don't know. <laughs> but I Well, did. I would just like to go on record as saying you're giving far too much credit to me in, in saying that we are getting this done. You're the one doing all of that. I just show up here on the microphone and talk. So you're the one putting in all that effort and time. So I I understand that, but I I just want to give credit where credit is due. Well, thank you. But I can't do this show without you. So I, we wouldn't even be at this place had it not been for you. So I appreciate you for that. I don't know about that. Um, However, I have now droned on for long enough. (laughs) So it is time for us to start start talking about domestic violence. But before I jump specifically into the different populations across the lifespan uh, from our last episode, we covered quite a bit of information. Yeah, last we week. did. Would you agree with yeah. that? Yeah, there was a lot. <laughs> what do you What do you think about last week's episode, Michelle? Well, to be honest, you know, I be honest, I'm struggling with with this subject matter in an you know, in its entirety because of a lot of personal experience. So to me, I'm trying to keep it on the level of just general information. Mm -hmm. However, it does slide into the experiential for me quite often. So yeah, it's, it's, it's heavy for me, but you know, I'm just like, I'm just doing my best to hang in here with it. (laughs) Well, I I appreciate you doing so. And I think that you've done a great job, Hmm. even in managing your own reactions when you've found things to be triggering. I've been impressed with well i'm trying people notice i'm laughing more that's probably the nervous laughter so i love your laughter even (laughs) when it's not real i love it (laughs) well it's real it's just that it comes from a place of nervousness not not genuine humor at anything in particular so it's a nervous tick that's fair i mean that's worse there are worse nervous ticks i guess there are could break out in profanity (laughs) although i do that too i was gonna say i kind of embrace (laughs) that on this show we're mental health professionals. And if you ever be... get a personal message from me where I'm complaining about something, that's what you're going to get. So. Well, I can handle that. I can handle that. Well, I know you can. I'm just saying as a warning to anybody else, be careful what you ask for. So. 
There's nothing better than a road rage polo from Michelle Collins. I'll just tell you <laughs> I know, that yeah, right I know now. you love them. I love or them. how about just a general polo where I'm talking to you while I'm driving and then it turns into. Hey, oh, it's even the, that's even better. When she starts and she's totally cool, like we're talking about, you know, the show, like what we're going to be doing, like direction. And then all of a sudden, either someone cuts her off. Someone is moving too slowly. Someone is in the wrong lane. Someone doesn't use their clicker. Someone, I don't know what they're doing, but there's too many people in that car. I don't know what's happening, but they need to get it in gear. No. Okay. So funny story. I'm sorry. I have to tell you this. So I'm coming back this afternoon with my son. We had to stop and get gas. And so we pull into this gas station and it's a weird gas station. So, but there's a car from us in front of us at the pump. Apparently it was a truck stop. So apparently they're in there loading up on their truck stop Trotsky's. I don't know what they're doing in there, but anyway, the whole car is empty. So we're waiting, we're waiting. They finally come back out. It takes them 10 minutes to get in this car. And I'm not exaggerating at all. And they just kept coming out of the place. And at almost the same exact moment, my son and I are both like, what is it, a freaking clown car? <laughs> just go off. And just, <laughs> just go off. And I'm sitting there thinking about it later. I'm like, that's my kid right there. <laughs> we both just had a freaking mental breakdown right there in the gas station parking lot. Because these people from Indiana were taking far too long to get in their van and get the hell out of my way. <laughs> So yes, I can have a little bit of road rage. The challenges of life. <laughs> it just cracked me up that it was like almost simultaneously we both just whack. <laughs> both reached a limit at the same time. So <laughs> anyway, what were we talking about? <laughs> okay, get we on with move. it, Seth. We got it. We got. We got to get to content. <laughs> All right, we got to do it because people are not listening to this just to hear our mental minutes. They're listening to to us because we're supposed to be offering, you know, wisdom and feedback and resources. And so last week we covered a lot of information. One of the things we did not cover that I think is very important. And I want us to cover before we jump into lifespan firearms. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's a good place to go because that can be problematic. Why? Well, because anytime there's violence, it's only going to be exacerbated if the, if there's firearms available. Yes. Hands down. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, again, not to, because I know we're talking about domestic violence specifically, but as a counselor that's worked in crisis intervention for so long, like I can't even, when, even, when there's mental health concerns involved, firearms change the game completely. Yeah. Um, it even changes the game in regards to safety and planning from a professional perspective. So kind of looking at some of the statistics around firearms used as a tool for domestic violence. Again, for this series, we're pulling our data from ncadv.org. That's the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence. They report that approximately 4.5 million women alive today have been threatened by intimate partners with firearms. Mm -hmm. So that's not saying 4.5 million women experience intimate partner violence. That's saying 4.5 million experience partner violence, intimate partner violence that involved a firearm, meaning the number is far greater um, of people impacted by this women impacted by intimate partner violence but 4.5 million have been threatened with a firearm. Yeah. 
I remember, I mean, I had that experience in, in my childhood. One of the people in our home had, had weapons and they were under the couch. And I remember anytime there was an argument going and sitting on that couch to ensure that those were not gone after mm. so that they, they didn't become a part of a bigger part of the problem. So it's, it's a daunting thing because again, it raises that level of awareness that violence is going to escalate or has the potential to escalate to that. And so it's, it's difficult to live in that kind of environment knowing that. And that's not to say that that person is not necessary, you know, not normally a responsible gun owner. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not expecting them to go out and shoot a bunch of people in a movie theater or something like that. We're not talking about that, but we are talking about the fact that having that gun available then perpetuates a, a whole different level of violence that could be happening in the home anytime, especially if they're prone to domestic violence anyway, or any kind of violence within the home, having that gun, all it takes is one moment of freaking out and game over. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that they had firearms at home. Were they ever used? I, I don't have memory of that. I just know they were there and that there were several that were kept under the couch. They were like, uh, weren't shotguns, but they were longer guns of some kind. I don't recall what they were, but I know they were there. And yeah, so it would, and I had a stepbrother at that time. And I remember both of us would go sit on the couch and just sit there to make sure that nobody came for those. I mean, I can, I, I I really can only imagine. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's not a nice feeling at all. (laughs) No, certainly not. I'm happy that there wasn't an event, which not, so it's not saying it never happened, right? That the firearm was never used to threaten. It was never used. No, it was never used. But the potential's there. If it, if it's available, it's there. The potential's right. there. And that and that's really where it's concerning. It's not suggesting that if you have a firearm that you're a bad person. Or that you're um, prone to domestic violence. Exactly. <laughs> We're just talking so, about where the two meet is, right. is problematic. And so I, I want to make a, a really big clarification on that. Now, I am not a gun guy. Not my, yeah. t- not my cup of tea. However, I grew up in Northwest Missouri, and I would say probably <laughs> over 50% of my family are gun holding touting republicans so you know (laughs) guns were around i mean i remember going to so many thanksgiving events and we would be shooting guns now i always declined and allowed them to shoot the cans because had i tried i wouldn't have hit the can but i still would have you know i but i refused to do it I'm just not, I'm just not about it. I can it. fire a weapon. I, I mean, of course, being in the Marine Corps, I had to. Right. So I learned on several different ones. So, I mean, I can shoot. I just don't want to. Right. It's just not my thing either. So, so I've had a gun put in my face. I've dealt with that, but it, it's just not something that I want to use. Mm-hmm. So I just want to provide a clarification on that and that having this conversation on firearms and domestic violence I'm not suggesting that it is wrong to own a firearm. No, I'm not no. suggesting that having a firearm makes you a domestic abuser. Right. What I'm saying is that if there is a domestic violence situation going on and there is a firearm that is within reach, the risk is far greater right? and far dangerous, far more dangerous. In fact, right. um, looking at some of these other statistics, 1 million women have actually been shot or shot at by their abusers and frightening mm -hmm. (laughs) and one in three female murder victims 
and one in 20 male murder victims are killed by intimate partners. Right. So the stats are there. You add the firearm, the game changes. Yeah, which is unfortunate. I actually knew a lady uh, when I was in the Marine Corps. She was a bodybuilder as well when I was bodybuilding in the Marine Corps. Uh, she and her husband both were bodybuilders. And uh, apparently there was some domestic violence in their home. Mm-hmm. There was a gun in their home and there was an argument at one point and she pulled out a shotgun and killed him. She's still in prison. Uh, and this has been over 30 years ago. But it, it again, it was that was a crime of convenience. The gun was there. I don't think she sat down and said, I think I'm going to plan to, you know, to shoot this person today. Right. It just happened. And unfortunately, it happened in front of their kids. So that was a really horrible thing. But yeah, it, it again, it exacerbates the potential for violence and and violence that is going to be long standing, you know, it's going to be long uh what's the word I'm looking for? It resulting in death often or, you know, circumstances that are, you know, you're physically limited for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. So. so so talking about like the prevalence of having a firearm being in a domestic violence situation and it leading to a, an actual incident. Mm-hmm. Looking at some of these stats, it, it shares that um, an abuser's access to a firearm increases the risk of femicide, so the death of a, of a female, mm-hmm. by at least 400%. Yeah, it's pretty significant. <laughs> I, I would say so. Yeah, just a tiny bit. Just 400%? Yeah. That's astronomical. It's, it's definitely up there. <laughs> I, I went down a little bit further and I, I thought this was an interesting distinction. 48.6% of women killed by intimate partners are killed by dating partners. So we're not even talking about people that are in a married, cohabitive relationship mm-hmm. where, you know, there's this potential. We're talking about people that are dating. Mm-hmm. So to, to me, that is, this relationship has already reached a level that is unacceptable prior to even any kind of commitment to one another. Right. You know, and so that's differentiating between from them and women that are actually in relationships, Mm -hmm. you know, committed relationships. So it's not just a dating situation. I think the same thing is true though, too. Those stats are kind of startling. If you look at situations like rape, when you're talking about rape and date rape, there's, they're kind of startling as well, how prevalent that is. So I don't know. Violence is violence. It's ugly. But when we add in the firearms, the propensity for it is much higher. So, yeah. Women in the United States are 11 times more likely to be murdered with a gun than in other high income nations. That's amazing when you think about it. I mean, why is that? Is it just because we have an overabundance of of guns here? Or we have a lot of guns. Are we a more violent nation? I mean, I think it's access to firearms. I think I'm that, sure that plays a part. I mean, I think it's pretty easy to get a gun here in America. I've never tried, but I mean, I'm sure I could go get one if I wanted one. So why you don't need one? Just punch them in the face. I, no, I don't need one. I'm just saying. I, I'm guessing it would be pretty easy if I decided I want one. I could get one. So and I just realized I said something stupid. I said you don't need a firearm. You can punch them in the face. Clearly, <laughs> a firearm <laughs> would win over being punched in the face. <laughs> Um, however, a throat I'm just punch, saying, however, Michelle Collins is not <laughs> someone I'd want to meet in a, oh, a dark alley. Have you seen your arms? I don't. If you haven't, please go to your Facebook page and just look. They're there. 
I'm a nice person. I didn't say that you weren't. That doesn't mean I'm that I'm dangerous. It means that you just can means pro- I can lift heavy weight. That's all. It means you can protect yourself. It doesn't mean you're yeah, dangerous. It not means necessarily that doesn't mean. Well, yeah. If a firearm's involved, it's kind of game over. Exactly. There's that's no guarantee. So now you right. mentioned something about children with this yeah. a minute ago, and so let's let's actually go there. I, I think okay. that we need to spend some time if we're really going to unpack domestic violence trauma. I think that we are doing a disservice to everyone listening to this series if we don't spend some time talking about the impact it has on kids. Would you agree? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm going through therapy right now because of the impact it had on my life. So <laughs> as as a child, correct? As a child, yeah, as a child. Mm-hmm. Into my teenage years, yeah. So yeah, it's detrimental. I mean, it's, uh, again, I think that we mentioned this on another podcast, the idea that often it's thought that the child is not implicated or impacted at all by domestic violence if they're not being, if they're not the one actually being, you know, physically violated in some form or fashion. But that's not true because trauma, of course, can happen just from being near or involved in in a traumatic event, not necessarily the victim of. Right. In fact, so kind of going off of that, again, pulling stats from NCADV, um, witnessing intimate partner violence is associated with other forms of trauma. One in three children who witnessed domestic violence were also child abuse victims. So that means that two out of three children who've witnessed domestic violence didn't actually receive childhood abuse. Well, they did. I mean, they did. They received domestic violence by witnessing it, but it wasn't perpetuated on them personally. Right. But it can be just as damaging, which is why the statistic is so important. Well, it it can be. And I think, again, the the reasoning goes back to the idea that oftentimes the children are kind of an afterthought. So say one of the, you know, one of the two adults involved or however many number of adults, I mean, I'm not limiting it. I'm just saying they're typically the ones that are the victim of the domestic violence. So the the child is kind of an afterthought that, yeah, they saw it, but nothing really happened to them. So we don't need to worry about them. But that's absolutely not true because often they are absorbing the impact and the trauma of that event. It is then coloring their behavior and on into adulthood often where they then actually often perpetuate the cycle, you know, and, and that's problematic. It takes a lot to break that kind of cycle. We also find that a lot of those kids, and this is anecdotal, but a lot of those kids struggle in school. So that affects their education, their learning capabilities. It affects their future relationships and their trust value in other human beings. So there is a lot of longstanding implications to them just witnessing domestic violence as a child. And that's not even that's not even taking into consideration those that are actually victims of the domestic violence right. itself, where they are actually the ones being violated in some form or fashion. Exactly. So I want to spend some time here mm-hmm. um, because I actually want to not just talk about what they're experiencing, because you mentioned several things I think are important to, to highlight, but why they're experiencing them, right? Like what is happening in the domestic violence situation or what's happening at home that's leading to that now. But I think one of the things we know statistically, whether it is physical violence, emotional violence, manipulation, these uh, child sexual abuse, any of these different things, we know that it often will result 
in generalized anxiety disorder. For sure. Because they don't, there's the, the, the control is taken away. Right. Right. They, They don't, they're not adults. They're not in charge. They're supposed to look to someone else to be their guide, to be their parent. And that parent, whether it be physical or not, is taking advantage of that to where the kid doesn't feel like they have anyone anywhere that they can go and feel safe. Well, and what's problematic in that, I mean, more than just the obvious is that when you're talking about a child, you're talking about somebody whose, whose brain is not even fully developed. Right. So you're talking about neural pathways being developed. You're talking about the midbrain getting involved in, in what it understands to be reality. Mm -hmm. And it's ironic. I just had this discussion with my, with my counselor or my therapist this last week. We were talking about when information's coming in that serves as some form of trigger that your midbrain is receiving it quickly and, and first. So there's a reaction milliseconds before it reaches your frontal cortex where you can actually in context think about it. Meanwhile, the reaction is already happening. So you're talking about kids who are having their midbrain affected at that level mm-hmm. to where it is coloring their lens of life. And they're not even old enough to understand that that's what's happening yet. Right. So as they grow into adulthood and they're, they're struggling with all of these things, they don't even have the bandwidth to understand why. Right. They don't know. And that we, we actually touched on that quite a bit during our first right. uh, uh, series on, on trauma in general. But that is so true mm-hmm. that the amygdala is receiving stress responses from the lizard brain. And that is often quicker than the neocortex, their, their wizard brain. So Mm -hmm. the body is act, sorry, I'm just repeating you, but like the body is, the body is like legitimately responding naturally before the thinking brain even right. knows what's happening, which well, and that supposes that they're old so enough much. to understand, even if they are able to think about it, that supposes that they're old enough to understand. And, and and quite honestly, when we're talking about violence, children witnessing violence, there really is no explanation that makes sense for that. Mm-hmm. It, there just isn't. And so even trying to explain it to a child is problematic because they're not old enough to understand their brain isn't fully formed. And you're trying to explain something to them that has no explanation that's, that's valid anyway. Right. And so, again, you, you start seeing these children grow up. You start seeing behaviors and, and things that now get them labeled as problematic in school or into their adulthood or even criminally. And, in fact, they are just reacting from trauma that they've witnessed as a small child or, you know, even, you know, teenagers or whatever. Because we tend to think of, you know, as by the time you're a teenager, oh, they're grown. They should know better. But they're not because your brain isn't fully formed yet. That's not – it's not physically right to expect that. Mm-hmm. And so it it is incredibly problematic, not only to the person being brutalized, but also to those that are experiencing it, especially if they're children. Yes. It's a sad thing. So generalized anxiety. Yes. Sleeplessness. Sure. Constant fear of what's going to happen. It's very difficult to to relax at the end of the day if you don't know what's going to happen in the middle of the night. Um, you throw in alcohol and things like that with abusers, they start drinking at 9 p.m. That child may have very, might have a diff- difficult time falling asleep, fearful of what's going to happen with it when dad gets too drunk and they wake them up. That was my childhood. I would lay in bed trying not to fall asleep and making sure to listen to the, and be hypervigilant about the conversation that was happening elsewhere in the house. 
because I wanted as much time to be able to protect myself or my brother if things began to escalate. Wow. So it, yeah. And then coming awake to that is even more, is just as problematic, if not more problematic. Mm. So it's, yeah, all of those things, generalized anxiety, trouble sleeping, all of that stuff is, is experiential to me. Mm-hmm. So I literally have got the anxiety sitting in my throat, okay. right? Well, I'll, I'll, I'm going to go. I'm <laughs> no, gonna, it's cool. It's cool. I'm going to go to this next one, which I don't think it's going to affect you. Yeah. I'm but a then, plethora of events. So you never then know. I'm thinking more about you and I'm thinking, well, very well may. The next one we notice with kids is aggression. No, I wasn't aggressive. So oftentimes what happens, first of all, kids mimic what they experience at home. Right, right. So it's not like this child is being purposely aggressive. They very well may have been conditioned that that's how you are supposed to respond in certain circumstances because they've witnessed it. Right. But beyond that, aggression can also come up when they start wanting to fight against the system, right? Or fight against the situation. Right. And therefore it comes out, not just in family relationships, but also very frequently at school. Yeah. And with their peers. Yes. And that's when they get sent to the principal's office. And now it's, we have a troubled child rather than understanding what went on that led to that aggression. So those are all factors. Difficulty concentrating. I mean, by golly, we're talking about kids who don't fully have their brain developed. Mm -hmm. What do, what, what is the biggest priority for them to be concentrating on? Is it their schoolwork or is it being able to survive when they go home? Exactly. Yeah. I would say the opposite of that happens as well, because I think this was more my brother, although I was guilty of it as well, that, that, that ability to go inward and kind of shut out everything going on around you. Mm, um, like I did that with reading. Yeah, I did that with reading. Mm-hmm. Um, I would get lost in books where I would not hear people speaking directly to me because it, in the in the story I was I was involved in no, none of this was happening. Uh, my brother was that way with television, so I think that can be as possible as well. But yeah, I think you're right. There, the majority of the time you're talking about kids that can't concentrate, and they and they're constantly hyper vigilant about what's happening around them. Mm-hmm. And we talked about sleeplessness. Mm-hmm. If they're, they are able to fall asleep, what do you think they frequently experience? Mm-hmm. Nightmares. Yep. Yeah. Their mind is literally trying to make sense of right. what they've witnessed. Right. And will often show up in their dreams uh, in a, in the form of a nightmare. So right. it's not just difficulty falling asleep due to the hypervigilance, but the hypervigilance even shows up in their sleep. Right. Yeah. It's, it's very upsetting. There's so many detrimental things that happen. Another thing I want to mention is separation anxiety. Oftentimes in situations with domestic violence, the child will identify or attempt to identify someone that is safe, whether that be mom, whether that be a sibling, whether whoever that might be, that's the person that they lean on for safety and right. to keep them okay and, and who they can reach out for help. When those people aren't there, 
they don't feel supported and they'll often experience some form of, of, you know, a separation anxiety, just this fear of what's going to happen if you leave. Um, I know as a social worker who's worked in community mental health, I don't have any personal experience with this, but I know plenty of social workers who have, um, specifically working in children's division, they form these bonds with these children. And then when they need to leave, the child grabs onto their leg and won't let go. Yeah. Because they're, they're terrified of what's going to happen when this person leaves because they've seen the other side. I think these are all things that we need to consider because, because it can be so easy. And we talked about this during the first series on, in the overview, but it can be so easy to look at someone's behavior or someone's response and reaction and make judgments based upon that. Right. without actually understanding what's going on behind the scenes. Right. Well, I mean, we find that to be true in a lot of situations with children. We we make snap judgments about people and how they deal with their children anyway, yeah. not knowing what may be limiting that child or what may be behind how that child is acting. So in this case, again, I think the same things happen. I would hope that it's more open and talked about in schools now, like counselors or teachers are more aware But a lot of times kids are just labeled as problematic or aggressive or whatever without anybody taking the time to figure out why that may be true Mm -hmm. and that there may be a situation that they could step in and help. I can tell you from experience that kids don't go to school and go, hey, guess what? People are hitting people in my house. Or, hey, by the way, somebody's touching me inappropriately. You don't go to school and announce that stuff. You go to school and try to act as normal as possible and hope nobody knows Mm -hmm. how your life actually is. Survival. And so you're, you're hoping that nobody understands or sees it, you know? And so I, I do think somebody has to be really very much paying attention to pick up on those things, but some of the behavior patterns should be indicative for, for teachers and counselors and whatnot to go, there's a problem there. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's try and figure out why. Again, now that's another whole discussion because we could get into the fact that they don't have the time to do that. They're overcrowded. They're overworked. You know, there's a lot of different factors that are playing into that, uh, not happening. But unfortunately, it, it, it isn't happening and it should be happening that we should yes. be recognizing those things. Absolutely. So. Before we move on to dating and in, in like, you know, teen years mm-hmm. and domestic violence, I, I want to just touch on the long term effects on yeah. kids, because I think this is this is critical and it doesn't often get talked about children who witness. Now, I'm not saying received abuse. right? I'm saying witnessed abuse. Domestic violence was present in the home. The child survived. We know that children who witness intimate partner violence grow up to be three times as likely as their peers to engage in violent behavior. Again, we're looking at that repetitive behavior, but we're not talking about it right. You know, like as their children, we're talking about as throughout adulthood. So children who've experienced this at home are far more likely to repeat that later on in their life, in their own relationships. You know, and this is going to be opening a can of worms, but I think this is something that maybe in another series we should come back to because I'd be interested in discussing it. But what about the impact of, of corporal punishment Mm. in that cycle as well? Because I know a lot, especially a lot of people my age were raised that way. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and again, it, it teaches this pattern of get your way with violence. Mm-hmm. And I know there's a lot of people that are going to disagree with that because that's a very big debate. So that's why I'm saying opening a can of worms, future discussion. But, you know, it, it comes to mind when we're talking about that. Yeah. 
I mean, I think that there's a lot of different angles to that. Sure. I don't think that's a clear cut yes and no. No, I don't either. So. Also, children learn if by witnessing this, this kind of goes along with what I just mentioned, but they learn that violence is the appropriate way to solve conflict. Right. right. It's conditioning. Mm-hmm. It's what they were taught. They're repeating what they've been taught. It doesn't right. mean this, there's something wrong with this child. It mm-hmm. means that they have witnessed something traumatic and they are coping and dealing with it the best way that they know how. The issue is that if that does not get worked through in childhood, when they get into adulthood, the violence remains because that's what they've learned. That's right. what they know. They never learned a different way to handle conflict. This last one I thought was, well, the last one here I thought was pretty interesting. Children who witness incidents of domestic violence are at a greater risk of serious adult health problems, including obesity, cancer, heart disease, depression, substance abuse, tobacco use, and unintended pregnancies. That's fascinating to me. Well, we know why. Yeah, I I just, you know, you don't think about, oh, you know, increased chances of obesity. Well, you don't really liken that back to childhood trauma very often. I don't anyway. We did an entire series on the ACE study. I know that. But I'm just saying that typically the normal average person is not going to go, oh, obesity. I wonder if there was childhood trauma. Oh, well, yeah. You're right. That's what I'm saying. So to me, these are interesting. What we know is that, and again, review, but experiencing traumatic events in childhood increase the repetition of oh man it's been a minute since we did that overview but (laughs) it increases trauma in childhood and in adulthood increases cortisol cortisol is a stress response chemical that your brain releases whenever it feels triggered the issue is that too much cortisol will literally clog things and cause health problems, which can include obesity, heart disease, lung disease, autoimmune disorders, uh, all of that jazz. Well, again, my point is like, if you're looking at depression, depression, you can go, okay, maybe there's some kind of trauma that's causing depression. That makes sense. Um, But when you're talking about those things that are typically very physical in nature- yeah, it, it, it typically you're not the average person isn't going to go, oh, I bet this is a result of trauma and too much cortisol in the body. You know, they're not right. going to do that. Right. Um, physicians or mental health professionals might understand that that link. But more often than not, you're not looking. So if I come across somebody who seems to be depressed and is obese, I don't want to make an assumption that there's trauma in their past, but there's probably a good chance that there is mm-hmm. and that these are symptoms or signs thereof. Mm-hmm. So, you know, again, we don't context is everything. Yes. So we have to we have to make sure that we have context when we're talking with people. But at the same time, some of these make sense automatically in my head and others I'm like, wow, I wouldn't make that connection normally. So fair point. Yeah. Let's move right forward um, mm-hmm. into talking about teen campus and dating violence. Okay. Now you mentioned an interesting stat earlier um, mm-hmm. that a lot of the domestic violence behaviors were presenting during the dating period before they even got married. But let's talk about what this looks like from a teenager's perspective and college students perspective before we jump into the later adulthood. What do we think about that? Uh, I think it happens more often than we're aware of. I think that, uh, again, there's a lot of conditioning that goes into this Mm -hmm. just from the general mindset of, of people. I I've seen this again recently a lot 
the the fact that that women have always had to protect their drinks. Women have always had to walk with their keys in their hands in parking lots, you know, between their fingers. Women have always had to be hyper vigilant about their safety. So that stuff is learned as you're in school and as you move into college and dating. You you are learning that you have to take these precautions as a woman to protect yourself. Now, I'm not going to say that men don't have things that happen to them, but predominantly that's a woman thing to worry about. Mm-hmm. And so you are typically looking at behavior that is conditioning a woman to accept if that thing happens to her, well, I knew it was going to. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I've been preparing for that for a long time. So a lot of times you will find that, and again, it's an embarrassment issue as well, that if you are, you know, if you're sexually assaulted or you're physically assaulted in some form or fashion, typically you're not happy about sharing that information. Right. And especially if it's somebody you know, mm-hmm. you know. So I think you're much, again, I don't have the stats on this, so maybe I'm wrong about this, but I think that women that are raped by somebody they don't know are more apt to report that than somebody who is date raped because they feel some sense of culpability along with that. Right. Well, and there's so much within our culture that blames the female. Right. So again, it, it's it's problematic, it, but it is it does start there more often than not. And there may not be overt violence. It may just be small signs or things that, you know, that make you go, wait a minute. I, I recently had somebody that I was talking with who I've become friends with, and they made the comment to me, hey, let me know when you get home so I know you're home safely, which sounds like a nice thing, right? Yeah, I'll let you know when I'm I mean, home I safely. Tell my friends then the, the next time. time I was going to meet them somewhere, they're like, I thought you were going to tell me when you left your house. And it just struck me wrong. And I was like, I don't think I have to tell you when I'm leaving or when I'm going. I don't, I don't have to do that. Right. And it struck me as, and, and they probably didn't mean it problematic. I'm probably reading more into it than was necessary. But at the same time, I was like, so those little things that make you go, wait a minute, are sometimes the things that you need to pay attention to. Mm-hmm. But the problem is when you're younger and you're in that dating time in your life, high school, and you're starting college, or whatever, that's not what's uppermost in your mind. Right. You know, so suddenly you find yourself in these situations or these relationships that are problematic and you don't know how you got there necessarily. Mm-hmm. So that's my take on it anyway. I could be wrong. Well, let's look at some of these stats. Now, again, from NCADV, I've got a lot here. So I'm going to run through several of these. And I'm going to specifically look at teenage dating. And then I'm going to look at campus violence. Michelle's already spoken somewhat into campus life. Mm -hmm. But I want to first, I want to talk about teens. And then I want to move to that because, you know, they they flow. So, okay. Prepare yourselves, listeners, for some stats, <laughs> all right? NCADV.org. Um, nearly 20.9% of female high school students and 13.4% of male high school students report being physically or sexually abused by a dating partner. Hmm. At minimum, one out of 10 males and two out of 10 females in high school report being physically or sexually abused. Right. That's a lot. That's a lot. So I grew up in a small town with 32 kids in my class. That stat terrifies me because that's (laughs) a lot of people. That's a lot of my classmates. Yeah. Nearly 1.5 million high school students in the U.S. are physically abused by dating partners Mm. every year. Wow. 1.5 1.5 million. That's We're talking crazy. high school students. Yeah. High school students. That are dating. 
high school that's students. That's wrong. Tw- uh, 2013 study found that 26% of teens in relationships were victims of cyber dating. I bet that number is much higher, to be honest with you. That were victims of what? Uh, cyber dating. Abuse. Okay. Oh, okay. Like I imagine that percentage is higher. Mm-hmm. Um, only 33% of teenage dating abuse victims ever told anyone about it. Yeah, and that's that. Again, you're not readily giving up that information. And 50%, this is what really got me, 50% of youth reporting dating, violence, and rape also reported attempting suicide. Hmm. This is compared. I want to say that's shocking, but it's not. Right. And and this percentage is compared to 12.5% of non abused girls and 5.4% of non abused boys. Right. That number is staggering. Yeah. Was there anything on the campus violence that came out or pointed out to you? I think the stalking thing, you know, I guess that makes more sense now. I didn't feel like that was very prevalent when I was younger, but maybe I just wasn't aware of it. But yeah, over 13% of college women report that they've been stalked. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, I mean, that's a lot of energy for somebody to expend on, on another person, you know, and, and at a time when really, aren't you supposed to be concentrating on school? So like, that's really some, some problematic mental health stuff going on there, I think. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm not shocked by this one though. Date rape among college students accounts for 35% of attempted rapes. Oh yeah. That's what. That yeah kind of straight and that's kind of obvious. yeah <laughs> that one that one's kind of been a well-known thing for a while so mm-hmm. well the reason why this is all important and why i think it's important that we talk about not just the different types of trauma and things like that but actually look at the lifespan with the domestic violence because we know that women ages 16 to 24 so that's right between the high school and college years Mm-hmm. So women aged 16 to 24 experienced domestic violence as at the highest rate of any age group, almost three times the national average. Wow. So there's just a lot to, to consider here and, and to know that domestic violence impacts not just married people, not just people who are dating not just people who are living at home in domestic situations. It, it, it happens at every, it can happen at every period in life, essentially. Right. Right. So um, um, let's talk about domestic abuse in later life. Yeah. I really feel like, I mean, that to me is kind of shocking. I don't know why it should be, but it is like in later life, you know, you, you don't think of that happening as somebody's older or I don't generally, I think of that as being a younger thing, but well, makes sense. I think it varies on what the abuse is. Well, okay, good point. Very good point. Because we've talked about a lot of different types. Right? You're right. You're right. I, I, I would again. I'm not even looking at the stats here, but this is just an educated Seth guess. My guess is that people in later life will receive. Now, I'm going to say later life. When I say later life, I mean not your middle age. I'm talking 60 and above when I think when I, when I think later life, that's what I think of. Right. Um, so I'm not thinking about the, the house mom who's got a boyfriend, you know, who's got a boyfriend who's abusive and with the kids watching, I'm thinking of people later life. Well, that's what I'm saying. That's why my mind tends to go to that younger age group as well. So the older it, you know, I don't think about that as much. Right. 
Well, what I think we, I think you we see less physical and I think we see far more psychological and economical. Actually, I think if we look at this, physical is kind of up there, but again, yes. it doesn't necessarily have to be somebody that's a, a, an intimate partner. By the time you're an elder, you know, elder abuse typically may be coming back around to children or siblings that mm-hmm. are now adults, mm-hmm. you know, that are struggling with older parents or older family members. And so physical is actually up there. I think probably there's less sexual abuse. Yeah. Um, but I would I would guess emotional is up there and physical is up there. So let's look at the stats. Every year, approximately 4 million older wow. Americans are victims of physical, psychological, and or other forms of abuse and neglect. And now this isn't too shocking, but older adults who require assistance with daily living activities, their ADLs, are at an increased risk of being right. emotionally abused or financially exploited, which is that rest. actually makes sense. So <laughs> looking at all of this, I mean, I think it's pretty clear to see that this is very concerning. Yeah. 50% of older adults who have a diagnosis of dementia are mistreated or abused. That's so sad. 13.5% of older adults suffered emotional abuse since the age of 60. Wow. And only one out of every 24 cases of elder abuse is reported. Right. So I think it's far more prevalent than what we think because I don't think it gets reported very frequently. Well, that's probably true. And I think that's true of abuse in general. Yes. I would not. Across the board, regardless of demographic or age. So Mm -hmm. uh, we have to actually be cognizant of that as we're discussing it. But well, and having reviewed so much information today again this this entire series is being very data driven but next week won't but it has been a lot next week we get experiential so yeah next week is next week is lived experience so everyone get i mean everyone it's going to be and it's not mine (laughs) i still want to interview you on it though (laughs) What else would you add to this as we kind of wrap things up, Michelle? Well, again, I think we have to go back and revisit the idea of of abuse being different things. And we mentioned that several times already, but especially as it pertains to the elder abuse, uh, financial abuse is one of those that is is kind of prevalent. And and it's something that we're all pretty much aware of. We we, you know, we think about people that are older in our families and stuff that are more apt to give their money away, mm-hmm. you know, for scam things. Um, and you know, it happens. Even when you think your parents or your grandparents are in good mental health, you know, it happens. And for that moment, you're, you're able to see them and go, oh, wow, there is actually a problem here that maybe I didn't, I wasn't aware of. And so I think on that level, it typically doesn't necessarily have to be family related. Right. It's just related to their age and their inability to understand what's happening, especially because of technology or, you know, education or whatever. But one of the things that was startling to me in the stats that you were looking at a little bit ago and pertains to what what this is, victims of elder financial abuse lost an estimated $2.9 billion in 2011. And I'm sure it's more since then. Oh, yeah. I mean, cost of inflation. Oh, of course. (laughs) Um, But again, so, you know, as we're talking about domestic violence and abuse, we have a tendency to believe that that's happening, that we're only talking about what happens in the family. But we're talking about people being victimized 
and, and traumatized in some form or fashion is by the time you're an advanced age, often this is where you're starting to see this kind of abuse come in. Either it's physical abuse that's happening because of the people that are your caregivers as you're mm-hmm. older and their frustration as, you know, as I'm willing to bet that the large number of those people that you're talking about with dementia, it, often that's people feeling frustrated with their inability to help to take care of that person in the right fashion. But we also have to look at the outside caregivers. We have to look at people that may not even be closely associated with the person. Right. But that person is still being victimized by them in some in some fashion. Mm-hmm. So again, it, you know, violence and domestic violence tends to ebb and flow over lifetime. It changes in in its focus, if you will. So it's there's a lot here to the subject matter. And it, it's difficult to talk about. It's difficult for me to talk about it. Honestly, I feel like I, my throat's super tight this whole time. Well, so I apologize because I'm I'm struggling to get the words out. Can I just make a caveat sure. to our listeners that a lot of what you, you heard in this series are statistics. And the reason is, is because this is hard to talk about. It is. It really is. You know, I, I on, on a certain level, it's almost like I, I think the numbers should speak for themselves. <laughs> Well, the problem with that, though, is it tends to sterilize the subject matter. Right. It does. You're not and, wrong. And sometimes you, and again, this will this will become very real as we get into our lived experience episode next week. But all of these statistics come down to actual people experiencing something. Mm-hmm. And this so when realized. we look at it, yeah. So when we look at it purely from a statistical standpoint, we have a tendency to to divorce ourselves from the seriousness of the issue mm-hmm. other than to say, express outrage at the numbers. Like, oh, right. wow, that's startling. It, it wouldn't matter if there was one instance of one of those. It, when yeah. you see it from the experiential side, it's just as damaging mm-hmm. oh, without as a these doubt. great big numbers. So, you know, right now we're trying to provide enough information, but it certainly doesn't take away from the very real impact mm-hmm. that this kind of stuff has on people's lives and on your mental health. Right. And so talking about that, um, I do want to um, reference the National Domestic Violence Hotline. Their phone number is 1-800-799-7233 or otherwise 1-800-799-SAFE. want you to know that they are available 24-7-365. You can call them day or night. And quite frankly, you do not have to be in the thralls of a domestic violence situation to call them. You can call them and ask questions. You can call them and just say, hey, I need someone to talk to right now because I'm scared. It does not have to be he's got a knife and he's attempting to hurt me. Like call them anytime. They are there for you. Um, Just like Suicide Lifeline, uh, same, same type of thing. Also, as we near the last episode of this month, um, as Michelle mentioned, it will be on lived experience. Right. And we have some pretty serious conversations um, I've been working through that I, I uh, we're going to share. And, and I really hope that it, it helps make this real life um, and, and brings it to the ground. But if you have questions for Michelle or I personally about the show, things that we're talking about or questions on things or suggestions on things you'd like us to do, to do about the show, please feel free to text us or call us. That phone number is 314-690-5005. I also would like to refer you to our website, 
which has been upgraded with a brand new shop with merch that you can purchase. (laughs) That website is mental-podcast.com. We also have a pretty lively Facebook group as well as a Facebook page um, that is Mental Podcast for both of those. Please feel free to look those up. We haven't had much of a Patreon, in which case we've been having people support us financially, but we are looking at providing perks for that in the near future. So if that is something that you would like to do and support us, please feel free to um, sign up for our Patreon. That's patreon.com backslash mental podcast. Do we have our Marco Polo group? Oh my gosh. How did I forget that? I don't know. That's your lifeblood right there. Well, it is. So so tell us about it, Michelle. Uh, Marco Polo, if you're unfamiliar with it, it's an app you can download to your smartphone. It's actually video texting. Um, I love it because I don't have to sit and type with my thumbs and worry about Mm -hmm. typos, which I stress over. I literally hit the record button. It records a video of me talking and then I hit stop and it sends it to the person I'm talking to. We have a group for the mental podcast where Mm -hmm. you can come in and have discussions can ask us questions again about the podcast, but it's just a nice, it's in addition to the Facebook group. It's just a nice like way to connect. Right. um, And to find some camaraderie and support. And I will just note that on the Marco Polo group and in the Facebook group, we, we encourage if there, if you have questions and you're dealing with stuff, you can go in there and, and, and leave comments and ask questions. Just know that, Michelle and I um, are not running this show as your therapist. We're running this show as mental health professionals, providing you resources, information, and some candid conversation along the way. But does that mean that we don't want you to go into the Facebook group or to go into the Marco Polo group and ask questions and process your life? No, 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 no. We definitely want you doing that. that, It's why they exist. Yeah. Uh, we just have to be careful, specifically I, for myself. I'm a licensed clinician in the state of Missouri. In the state of Missouri. <laughs> I can't provide therapeutic services to people right. outside of the state of Missouri. Now, can I provide resources and tools and insight? Yes, I can. Right. <laughs> so I just wanted to make that clarification. And with that, we'll see you all next week.